everybody. You know what that comes Ooh. from? Because we got two people coming on this podcast right now that I'm really, really excited about. Wait, what show are we on right now? We are on Man Enough, the podcast Man Enough, where we discuss real stuff, where we talk about some of the problems that we have with masculinity, although masculinity itself is not bad. And who are you? I'm Jamie Heath. And who are you? I'm Liz Plank. And I'm Justin Baldoni. That's right. And what do we? who do we have on today, Liz? We have Richie Reseda and Manny Thomas III. Yes! These guys are incredible. And listen, let's just be straight up. You're about to listen to a, a conversation with two amazing men who uh, were incarcerated and are since released and are doing amazing work for humanity. And stick around and listen to these brothers talk. They got a lot. Yeah, the conversation gets better and better. Uh, we will be right back. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to Man Enough. Okay, this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, and this is going to be a very deep and powerful episode. And I'm so excited by these two incredible men we have here. Mm-hmm. Liz, yes. who do we have? Ooh, two <laughs> fabulous men. Richie, first, uh, you are an abolitionist feminist, producer and organizer. You're the co-founder of Success Stories, the transformational feminist program for incarcerated men that was profiled or, or chronicled in the CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Y, an so incredible documentary. Everyone should go check out. Um, Manny. You are co-executive director and growth coordinator, love that title, at Success Stories. Uh, and you've been a facilitator at the CTF prison since 2017. And together, you work directly to transform and provide resources for communities who are the most impacted by the systemic impacts of patriarchy and the prison industrial system, among many other things. It's really uh, a pleasure to have you both here today. You're both incredible, incredible men, and you're very funny. You're um, we've so already funny. been having a very good time. <laughs> I think my favorite, first of all, I'm so happy to be here, and the idea that I'm funny is my favorite part so far. <laughs> <laughs> the chapstick thing was... Oh, yeah, it was a good moment. Yeah. You are man enough to know you need product for your lips. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a crime to walk around dry-lipped. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> yes. So Patriarchy robs us so much, but so I refuse mean... to let it rob me of moisturized lips. <laughs> there you go. Why don't you... Why isn't chapstick ex- acceptable for men? Why can't this be Is it the starting point? You guys walked around... Not you, both of you, obviously, present company excluded. Walk... You you guys walk around with, like, cracked lips. It looks like... That like, must you, be a like white a thing, Because so no, the no. most patriarchal black men I know have moisturized lips. That's right. Yeah. Okay, but okay, I don't think we're being completely... Patriarchy is different. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, but so you, 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 there is an idea that if you see somebody walking around with like extra gloss lips, we're like, bruh. Of course, it's extra <laughs> glossy, then the patriarchy antennas start going off. But what does that clown for? What does that mean? The patriarchy yeah. antennas start going Just off? Just that there's a threshold in which people start deeming things as feminine. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if your lips are glossy, mm-hmm. then. And that's what I wanted to include right there where you're going. There's a particular individual that I don't even have to say his name, but the fact wow, that Wow, as soon as you said glossy lips, I thought of that, man. Boom. <laughs> and what did he represent on the yard? You see yeah. what I'm saying? In prison, they make us all dress the same. So there's only so many ways you can express yourself. So having glossy lips or colored lips is a way that sometimes queer men can like express their queerness in prison. Ah, got it. The reason why I thought it was important to make that distinction is because... For though for people who are living in their patriarchy, that is unacceptable. Like mm-hmm. it's pointed out and it's uh, unacceptable, and even in our conversation, right? So 
like we would be doing a disservice if we're saying like that doesn't actually happen. Like that's it, true. It, yeah, it happens. because even when we were doing it, and I was putting it on. I was like, I don't want my lips to be dry, but I hope it's not glossy. Like I felt the wow. like there was that little voice, voice inside yeah. of you. Boom. I it's so refreshing to sit with two men who uh, who use patriarchy almost as a verb, mm. and I think that's really interesting the way you talk about it and use it um, as it's such a foreign language for so many men. Yeah, so it's important to name it so that it, it doesn't continue to be that, right? Yeah. Because I think one of the things that I discovered for myself um, when I started with working with Richie and going through the Success Stories program was I actually was a part of a system that I wasn't even aware existed. So if I want to create a space where more people can be completely aware of what's happening and what system is 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 really mandating you to show up in a certain way that is not valuable to you or your community. Mm. At all. Like, it's presenting in ways in which it allows you not to be your full human, mm -hmm. right? And then you're showing up with other people to where you actually don't even see their humanity just simply by operating within the system. Mm. So the, the the ability to call one another on it is important, right? Like, even for, for those of us who have been doing this for quite some time, Richie much longer than most of us. Yeah, and in a way, like, watching the documentary, one of the most powerful things that, that struck me was seeing so many men use the word patriarchy yeah. and use it in a, in a really, I don't know, free way. And do you think that using the word patriarchy is a smarter way than using the word feminism? I know both of you use both terms very freely, but do you think that in a way, because I as a woman have been using feminism all this time, and I find that when I use patriarchy, it frames it as your oppression or your, um, you're the one who, who, who's boxed into this system, not necessarily only women. Do you think that using the word patriarchy would be smarter <laughs> if we want to reach uh, men on these questions? Um, my experience is that it's helpful to describe what the thing is before mm. using any of the buzzwords. Right. When I've gotten in front of rooms and said the word patriarchy, I can see like the eyes gloss over and yeah. like the, you know, but if when I get in front of rooms and say, you know how we were raised to believe that we had to be violent in order to be mm. worth a shit? Nobody says no to that. I've never had anybody say no to that. Yeah. So then we say, well, that's patriarchy. Right. And then people are like, oh, okay. And and I've, I've had a similar experience with feminism when speaking with men, when just describing, like, you know how we were raised to see women as ours and our um, ego being attached to our ability to make them do what we want them to do. Right. And then say, well, feminism offers us another way to relate to women. Um but yeah, the, giving the examples before the buzzwords is, is what I've found to be the most effective way to talk mm. about it, for people to get it. And yeah. I think it's it's also important to get that clarity so that people understand what you're talking about. So full transparency, even when he and I were first having this conversation and he was talking about like patriarchy, right? My understanding of something was male leadership, right? Like so His understanding of the word patriarchy was yeah. male leadership. So it was I was coming now into a conversation and I, the feeling was that I'm going to have to apologize for for my maleness. Right. Um, when that wasn't what we were talking about mm -hmm. at all. Like patriarchy was not attacking male leadership. And in fact, it was just saying that there's something wrong with the system that says you get to be a leader just because you're a male. Do you that's think, that, do you think that's one of the greater myths of feminism that um, it's man hating and that we, in order to accept it or embrace it, we would have to apologize for being male. Because I know that's that's something that I'm confronted up against with a lot of men in my work. Again, f feminism too is always, it's one of those things where it's like a dirty word, but I think 
it that that perspective of it being a dirty word was so that people didn't really dive and do their homework, right? Yeah, that's my experience too. I, I think that people who are are given power by this system are gonna play word games to try to protect that without even knowing that that's what they're doing. Yeah. So it could be feminism for men. It could be uh, anti-racism for white people. It could like whatever. There's going to be some reason to attack the word instead of attack the thing mm -hmm. um, because we can feel our privilege even if we're not consciously aware of it. And we can feel when somebody is challenging that privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think in capitalism where we're taught to like that we have to compete with each other to survive, there's a natural instinct to protect all the assets that we have, including our oppressive privilege. Mm -hmm. Jamie, how you feeling? I'm just watching these boys. Right <laughs> these, 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 and when I say boys, I mean my boys, right? You know, in, in terms of these, your guys' experience and what you guys are doing, how how uh, beautifully you express it, how unapologetic you are in your existence. Um, for you to walk the walk that you've done. So we haven't addressed one thing, right? So you guys both made some some choices in your life. You were in prison um, for 16 years, how many years? Seven years. Seven years, a good portion of your life. Um, and you made choices that you acknowledge that you made. Um, it's not like that they were, you were falsely accused. These are crimes that you committed. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, why do you think it's so important, the work that you're doing, what you're trying to change for our young boys? Um, and women, of course, too, in the world. Why do you, wh your experience, why does this matter? Why does this particular thing matter? Why is this is what you're fighting for instead of another stream for justice? Well, if we look at a majority of issues or insecurities or like things that people, that especially young men don't have, this, like the root cause of it would be patriarchy, right? And toxic masculinity and the framework in which we give them about manhood. So like one of the things that's been important to me since uh, becoming in charge of growth and success stories was reaching young men at a younger age, right? To get outside of the carceral system and to meet them in like middle school and high school where we're really, where we really dive into this belief system because at that point they're looking, like they're looking for where they can get value at and they're looking for how they can be like meaningful. And young men, this is a system that we buy into. So if you're asking me, like the work that we're doing is important for them because it's, it's giving them space to be their full and complete selves outside of this restrictive identity of manhood that we have that currently exists that isn't benefiting us, right? And really giving people the, the freedom to be, to just be. Uh, it was one of the things that I learned when I was going through success stories, the majority of my life, I didn't feel the freedom to just be. The lie that patriarchy tells us is the being me wasn't enough. And that was a lie, right? I'm mm -hmm. enough just as I am. Yes. Mm -hmm. Damn. Um, I, I think that all harm that takes place in communities happens because of poverty, because of trauma, and because of patriarchy. If there was no poverty, trauma, or patriarchy, pe human beings wouldn't hurt each other on purpose. Um, so I know for me, when I look back at not just the robberies I committed, which um, I'm sad to say is probably one of the lesser harmful things that I did as a teenager. Um, the reason why I was choosing those things was because of poverty, trauma, and patriarchy. And I remember when I was getting put on my hood, I was 16 when I actually like really got put on. And I was talking to uh, my homegirl and she was like, I don't, why are you getting put on? Like, 
everybody loves you just how you are. Like I, this was in 2008. I was wearing like pink skinny jeans and like, you know, like fat lime green laces and chucks and stuff. And she's like, you're, you're Richie. Like everyone just loves you. Like you're weird. Like you can be you. And I remember saying her, but I want them to respect me as a man. Oh, the respect. And the only pathway to respect as a man um, that I had access accessible to me was violence. I didn't have somebody to give me a million dollar loan to start a business like Donald Trump, right? <laughs> so my my access to to patriarchal um, status and respect all we all I had was violence. Bell Hooks talks about that too. Why it's so common in poor Black and Brown communities mm -hmm. is because the our only access is through violence. So um, when I was in prison and I, I was just blessed in that the people who were around me were intersectional feminist organizers, women and, and non-binary people of color from the time that I was 14 years old. So the conversation that was happening with me was always through the lens of patriarchy when talking mm -hmm. about transforming my behavior. It wasn't just like, don't break the law, fuck the laws. You know what I'm saying? Like laws are not made to serve people. They're made to serve legislators and corporations. Um, it, it's not about don't break the law for the sake of don't break the law. It was you are harming yourself and your community and it's patriarchy. I, I've never met anybody who was locked up and it wasn't connected to some kind of patriarchy unless they were locked up over like some straight like bullshit. Like I, I, I have a friend who did a year in prison because of an email with a typo in it and they called that fraud. She was working for the government. Um, mm. So like I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people who really harmed people like like Manny and I did. It was always connected to patriarchy. So um, in Soledad, it just, when I when I finally got to a medium security prison where there were self-help groups and stuff and they weren't talking about patriarchy, that was just weird to me. It was like we were dancing around the issue. Yeah. Um, so that's that was our entry point. You're listening to the Man Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Man Enough Podcast. You you dropped uh, bell hooks, so we share a love for bell hooks, and uh, in a will to change, she talks about the the first act of violence that us men commit against, um, commit in the patriarchy is not violence against women; it's violence against ourselves, and that act of psychic self mutilation that we call soul murder. I'm wondering if you guys can remember that first act of violence that you committed against yourself. Ooh, against myself. I, I the self hatred that always appears for me um, was like in reference to my surroundings. Hmm. Um, the the racial makeup of my community, there wasn't a whole lot of me around. I think I was the only African American kid in my class to probably like. But go ahead and keep living in Riverside. <laughs> <laughs> talking shit about LA. It's My changed. whole block is black. Listen, I don't have those it's problems. Change, sir. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that for me, and uh, up until like seventh grade, right? right? Um, so I always looked in the mirror, and again, it was this idea of like, you're, you're. It w not only was it not okay to be who I was, it just I was somewhere lower on the hierarchy of things. Hmm. Um, so much like Richie was talking about, my answer to that was to find the, the equalizer. And the equalizer was violence. Mm. But I always think back to, there was an incident when I was around three or four and I was in Texas, my first time spending time with family, um, and my cousin hit me. 
That was the story. Yeah, was like, and yeah. I went in the house crying, and my dad, who had been like my source of comfort, I was a daddy's boy. Like I fell asleep on his chest, held his hand, walked with him side by side. Like anywhere my dad was, I was. Um, and in that moment, uh, patriarchy didn't allow him to be my comfort because now he realized that no, I'm going to teach you how to be a man, and a man doesn't like you. Don't come in here crying. In fact, you go handle your business. And mm-hmm. every incident after that, it was that way. I remember a long time when I was a kid. If I had got into an altercation, the question was never, what was the altercation about? It was, did you win? Did you win? Uh, Right away. Did you win? Hmm. Um, And in fact, the only time I can ever remember getting in trouble is if the place in which I got a fight was unacceptable, right? Mm. So if it was in a place that would have brought like my dad shame because I wasn't showing respect, then I was in trouble. Yeah. But if it was in like school or in the community or whatever, the question was, did you win? and in fact, it was like encouraged in that way, not only in school, you know, but I remember there was a time where my, my nephew had came home crying and my dad realized that the kid who had made him cry was my age. Me and my nephew were six years apart and I had walked out, you know, on my patriarchy day, I'm going to go defend my family like you don't mess with my nephew, right? And my dad stopped me and he was like, you guys go to the same school? I'm like, yeah. He's like, when you go to school tomorrow, you don't take books, you don't take nothing, like you take care of that and then you have him call me. Like it was encouraged in that way. Because that's how wow. we were supposed to show up, right? Like, that was my duty as a young man to protect my nephew, right? And it wasn't And the seen. next day, did you you take oh, care of it? Oh, with pride. Like, went to, went to school, waited on the guy. He came down. We got into a fight. And I'll never forget the assistant principal's face when they were like, oh, I'm going to take you to the office. And I was just like, call my dad. And they were like, what? I was <laughs> like, yeah, call my dad. I don't have nothing to say. Just call my dad. And my dad literally came in the principal's office and was like, I don't need to talk to you. Where's the other kid? Looked and was like, okay, you did your job. Come home. And three days is like a vacation. So it showed up in that way to where it was like, no, this is how you show up. So you needed, in many ways, you were earning the patriarchal love of your father by exerting dominance and fighting. Absolutely. So fighting for you became a way to earn love. Fighting, not only was it love, even outside of my dad, right? Like, the thing that I was misinterpreting as respect, which was really fear. fear I think yeah. men say that a lot too. They'll say like, oh, I want respect. And it becomes this thing where people feel you. People didn't respect me. They either feared me or didn't want to be around me. That was the truth of it. But we were telling ourselves like, oh, it's a respect thing. Like, Well, that's the, that's the as Liz likes to say, that's the pyramid scheme of the patriarchy. Yeah. Because yeah. when you respect somebody, you're not trying to instantly take their position the second you can. When you fear someone, the second they're vulnerable, you take over. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's the thing. I'm curious. What's your... I couldn't think of mine. I was trying to think of it the whole time because I've never... I've answered the like, when was the first time I experienced soul murder, which was like my dad and like similar stories or like when's the first time I did it to someone else. But I'd never really thought about when's the first time I did it to myself. Mm. And I could not think of it. But it was that. It was when I decided that I wasn't enough. Um, Hmm. And I was like, I was 10. I came into middle school completely in myself like just how I was I liked lizards I had lizard shirts I like bright colors y'all remember those shirts that would have the, oh, like yeah. gecko with the sunglasses yeah, of course. yeah that was my shit I had all of them that I could have and I I had all my lizard shirts I was like so excited about that and literally by but then I got to school and I was racialized and I had and I had never been aware of being racialized before um and in school, it was like there is a certain way to be a black male kid. Mm. And it wasn't lizard shirts. 
Welcome to LA. Remember, he said the LA thing earlier. So. I actually was sent. My mom sent me to a white school because she didn't want me to go to the school by her house. Um, and but the school is very segregated. They had bust in a lot of kids from South Central. At the time, I lived in Canoga Park, um, and I just realized very quickly, like, oh, I am not good enough. Mm. And I like studied how to be good enough. I studied how to pretend like I like sports. And how to like stand by one conversation and listen to people talk about sports and then go to the other conversation and just mimic what I heard them say. To this day, I have only watched complete sports games while on lockdown in prison with literally nothing else to do. Um, I would like just all the things kids would do. There would be a fight. Everybody would like run to it. I'm like, why would you? I just didn't care enough to run to the fight, but I started running towards the fights and then eventually being in the fights and then eventually being in gangs and being in fights with groups of kids. Like I just learned how to be what the media and what older kids told me I was supposed to be as a young black man. And I think that was also my first experience with that. You're listening to the Man Enough podcast. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. You you spoke about your your fathers mm-hmm. and what you got from them. Um, have you recently or at any point had conversations? What's your relationship with your like with your fathers now? When you talk about this out loud, you're basically acknowledging that your father missed the mark a little bit, right? I'm sure he did some wonderful things as well, but in this way, he missed the mark, which contributed to the way that you were who you became. I wouldn't even say that he missed the mark. I would say that he did exactly what the system wanted him to do. Like he followed the the like patriarchal rule. Like my dad had three things. His his job was to provide, protect and punish. That's what patriarchy told him. So uh, with that rule book, he did exactly that. And in terms of like what this conversation has done for our relationship, patriarchy is built in hierarchies, right? Mm-hmm. It creates these systems of above and below, which even in like a, a relationship between a father and son, it's hard for me to see him like in his fully human self mm-hmm. because we're not vulnerable, right? Like, let's just be frank. It doesn't allow us to be vulnerable in that way, yeah. to which now we do. Like, my, my dad has had conversations with me about things that I never thought was possible. He'll talk to me about, you know, marriage in a way that he had never talked to me about before. Mm-hmm. He'll talk about how I got, I got to learn and understand when I told him how it affected me. He told me about the relationship between him and his father, right? And he was able to look back at, at things, and that's why he— you know, lied about his age and joined the Navy early and left early, right? Um, so it brought up all those things. It, it, it brought up times where he remembered, um, you know, my family, there's an incident that we still talk about, we laugh about. They tease me because there was some sort, part of my spirit that knew I, it was lacking. And I and I was like fully, like I just broke down and I, I told my mother and father, I said, I'm emotionally deprived. And they literally laughed at me. Like, and made fun of me for years. Like, it was years later to where they're like, that wasn't okay. But we can talk about those things, and we could talk about how not to show up in that way, right? Um, In a way to where, again, I'm always so thankful to success stories, and I could talk for it. Because I feel like my father sees me, and I see him in a way that would not have been possible if we were still holding on to those restrictive ideas of masculinity, right? and the last thing I'll say, I don't, I don't want to talk forever, but when, when we, especially when we talk about like our male to male um, relationships, right? Like if we think about patriarchy and we really investigate what it looks like, it allows all of our relationships to stay surface level. Like there's never an opportunity for depth and like real connection. So not only has my father's relationship changed in that way, but even friends who were 
like standoffish about the work that we do. Like the fact that because I live it so much, they begin to feel an experience in a different way. So like when I call them in the beginning, if I would have called them and my and my greeting to them off the bat was I love you, it felt weird to them. Mm. Now they echo it. I can start every conversation with any male. I can call any male friend on my phone right now and be like, I love you, bro. And we can, there's no weirdness there. Like, oh, I love you too. And then we just go into conversation. That wasn't the case. And these conversations made that possible, right? And now they show up in a different way. And there's a advantage to being vulnerable in that way that allows us to live and live fully. And for that, I'll forever be grateful. Mm -hmm. That's why as a man, it's the bravest, strongest thing we can do and be is vulnerable. Hmm. Richie, I want to talk on uh, touch on something that you brought up, which is the it, that incarceration is tied to trauma, poverty, and patriarchy. That it's those three things, and I think it's so important to say that to contextualize it because I think we still see prisons as like this thing that fixes yeah. broken men, uh, <laughs> right? And it obviously does, <laughs> does not. And we can touch on that. He's um, uh, he's making a very interesting face. Right yeah. Now. yeah, and it reminds me of the this data. I was just uh, researching. I've been doing a lot of research about gaslighting and sociopaths. Um, and there's this really interesting researcher who looks at the difference between, again, we associate sociopaths with like, they're just evil. Uh, they're not. Uh, there's two things that distinguishes a sociopath in her research, which is there is a brain dysfunction, but then there's also trauma. But the ones who end up not being violent don't have the trauma. They only have the, the dysfunction. And so mm. she finds that, right, like trauma is at the root of so much of this. Um, and after all, like, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if we can have a broader, more 10,000 feet conversation around mass incarceration and the link to yes. capitalism and the link to, right, like that in a capitalistic society, it is almost impossible not to create children who go through trauma and that prisons then become the solution, but they're also profit. <laughs> so then we're creating a solution that helps create more of the problem. Um, how do you, I don't know, I know this is like a huge loaded question, but how do you see the link between patriarchy and capitalism? And would patriarchy even exist if there wasn't capitalism? No, I really appreciate this question. All I think about is patriarchy and capitalism, actually. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say, if I, if I may reframe, which is yes. something I chronically do, mm. um, I wouldn't say that incarceration is a result of patriarchy and trauma and poverty. I would say that harm is. Incarceration is a result of a, um, just capitalism. Yeah. That, that's it. Like It's just a way of profiting off of human harm. And that's really the only purpose it serves um, in society. Mm. And, but the, the, to, to your, to your question, capitalism leads us to prioritize profit at all costs. And we are all the costs. Like human beings are the costs. So any capitalist effort, like Frito-Lay doesn't exist to make chips. Frito-Lay exists to make money. If they could sell you mud, they would, but they can't. So they sell you chips, but ultimately, and, and that's, it seems like a small distinction, but it's, it's a really big difference. And we can see those types of things all, all the time in the way that capitalism has set us up in a way that all of our lives exist to make money. So therefore, where your kids are, like what human beings need is no longer the point. Um, and, and I appreciate your analysis that trauma is the inevitable 
result of that because we're not centering what human mm. children need. Human children, what humans need, what families need mm. is secondary um, to what companies want, which is profit. Mm. So I, I personally grew up in a house where my dad worked two jobs and he worked from 3 a.m. until between like 6 and 8 p.m. at night. So I didn't grow up like, quote unquote, without a father in that, um, mm. in the way that many people who are incarcerated do. Um, but I did grow up without a father, not because he didn't want to be around us, but because his time was owned by the companies that he yeah. worked for. And the effect that that would have on his human life and his human's children's life was not the company's business. They don't care about that. They're just thinking, you are here. I'm going to pay you for as, the least amount of money that I can mm -hmm. legally get away with so I can keep the most amount in profit. And if you sign on the line, mm -hmm. gotcha. Mm -hmm. So what? Like what that means for your children, what that means for your life is not really my concern. My job is to just make profit for this company. Um, and the, the result is human beings not getting what they need. Mm -hmm. And then more products being made yeah. more cheaply by inmates. And, you know, it continues that cycle, right? I, well, I feel like some, yeah. Incarcerated people. Yeah. I was going to go there, but you, you want to do it? No. So uh, I think a, another part of like, our focus is always to humanize people. So mm -hmm. like when we, when we say inmates, inmates don't have a story. Yeah. Inmates don't have a family. So mm -hmm. we try to use Not them. that you meant anything by it. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is just a learning people. opportunity. Yeah. Like, so we, we try to. Uh, make sure that we're at the center of everything. We're still humanizing people. So mm -hmm. we'll say like incarcerated individuals. Incarcerated individuals or yeah, people. Or formerly incarcerated, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, But I think that when we're also important, so if we look at capitalism, right, like in patriarchy, like patriarchy is really, it, it's like typically rich white men have an advantage, right? And they created systems in order to protect what, what they had, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about incarceration, it's another system that's created, to one, not only bring them money, right, but, but to, to protect their things, not the person, which is why we have people that are sentenced to arbitrary amounts of time. It's not about community healing at all. So, like, the lie that, that capitalism will tell you and the patriarch will tell you, right, is that we're locking away these people for public safety, right, when a majority of these people will return home and they're not going to be in any better state than they were when they left. In yes. fact, they'll be worse, yeah. right? So what we try to make sure that the, the, the shift in the view that we have is we can give human beings what they need without further isolating, subjecting them to trauma and isolation, right? We can give them what they need while they're still in our communities. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, we're ignoring the need for accountability and safety, right? So, yeah, somebody may cause harm and have to be re removed from that community so that the person who suffered the harm may feel safe, but that doesn't mean that we take them to prisons in the middle of nowhere and subject them to further patriarchal harm with guards that don't see them as people and and then put them around other people who are not getting them what they need. So there's other incarcerated individuals who are subjecting them to harm. Like, no. And that actually limits accountability. It really, it will, the system isn't concerned with accountability, right? The, again, it's just about the arbitrary time that they give a person. They don't really ever care unless you're a lifer and you have to go sit in front of a board. Accountability never even comes into the framework. Yeah. Damn. Even then, yeah, the shame is the enemy of accountability. <laughs> If you've ever had to be accountable for something you did, the more ashamed you feel about mm. it, the harder it is to say, I chose to do this thing and I understand why it hurt you. I'm never going to do it again. Say that one more time. Mm. Say that one more time. Yeah. Shame is, is the enemy of accountability. Mm. It, it makes it more difficult for us to be accountable. Being at risk of being killed is even further an enemy of accountability. I didn't think about the people I robbed until I was incarcerated for two years because immediately getting to the L.A. County Jail, I saw the L.A. Sheriff's break someone's leg. 
there was a riot. As soon as I transferred, I was fighting 150 years to life. I was in five fights. Then I transferred to state prison. I seen someone get stabbed. I seen a cop shoot live rounds into a closed building. I had 10 years to do in prison. I was 20 years old. I, I wasn't thinking about the, the choice that I made to rob those stores and more importantly, the people in those stores. Mm. I wasn't thinking about the effect that that had on their life and why I made that choice. That was the last thing from my mind. I was trying to survive. Yeah. Not only is the system unconcerned with accountability, this system is is the opposite of accountability. It makes accountability almost impossible. And a lot of people will do their whole time, get out and still not be accountable because now they have been victimized. Mm-hmm. And and then there's this weird thing where you get out and the people kind of see you as this weird hero because we all have a sense that prisons are fucked up. Mm-hmm. So we meet people who have been in prison. We're like, wow, this dude did 20 years, damn. And there's like this kind of like reverence for like their ability to go through something hard. And it's like, we're still not even thinking about the people who who nobody ever asks me about the people who I robbed. I was literally going to say that like nobody asked me about um, the person that I shot. Never ask. That's never happened other than when I went to board. The cops don't ask about them in prison. Mm. When you get out of prison, people don't. Oh, what'd you go to prison for? I robbed somebody. They don't go. Oh, are they okay? They go, how much time did you get? And then they're trying to do this arbitrary math in their head to see if they can make it feel fair. If I tell them I did two years, they're like, "Mm, it's kind of even. I tell them I did seven, they're like, "Mm." I know people, our boy Chris, who works at Success Stories, got 68 years for robbery. And his white co-defendant got two years. So when you say it like that, then people are like, that's unjust. But they're both arbitrary sentences. What if he got 13 and she got eight? Like, it's it's all made up. And you know what no one ever says to Chris? Damn, how are those people that you robbed? Are they okay? Exactly. Do you know them? Dude, what did they get? We don't even, the system doesn't even care about them. It just mm. uses them to justify punishing us for the sake of profit and then kicks them out. Mm. So what is the system that you would redesign as an abolitionist to focus a on system accountability? That's, I, for me personally, I would design a system that actually cares about human and human needs. Like I would center the human being. We have to look at structures that perpetuate harm, right? And we need to change those, right? I think that's one of the beautiful things about when we think about transformative justice, right? Transformative justice is going to look at everything that's involved. So it'll look at the person who was harmed, Mm -hmm. the person who caused the harm, and the systems that contributed to that harm, right? One, we need to make it people-centered, both people, right? Not just the person who suffered. Because when we look at the punitive system, which is really what we've had for a very long time, that's only worried about... A happened, now I'm going to cause equal equal or more severe harm to that person who caused harm. Yeah. That's it. Then a lot of the time now we hear this restorative, right? So restorative is going to say, okay, we're going to take the person who was harmed and restore them to whatever they were at, wherever they were when harm happened. And the problem with that is there is an assumption that where they were when the harm happened was a good place to start off with, which is hmm. more often than not, not the case, right? Like they weren't in a great place then. And then transformative justice says, okay, we're going to look at the person who was harmed. We're going to look at the person who did the harming to see what it is that they need to no longer cause harm to themselves or the community. And then we're going to look at the systems that are at play that that likely made that happen, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that be justice systems, whether that be food justice, like all these differences, legal, whatever it is, right? We're going to look at the systems that are at play that made it hard for these individuals, that subjected them to some type of harm to where they did something maladaptive and went out to try to meet a need. It looks at all of it. So I would do that, right? I would focus and say that, I'm going to get away from this punitive system and this idea, this love that Americans have with punishment, this idea that when one wrong happens, we have to then settle it with another wrong and say, okay, how can I love on a person to transform 
what they need and to transform their behavior, right? And the way that we get to a healed spot is if I can see your problem is my problem. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, the truth is we're all part of this big, beautiful mosaic of life that somehow got shattered by whatever the event was. I don't know what the event was. I'm not that enlightened. But whatever the event was shattered it, right? And we're just really trying to find ourselves our way back to one another. And isn't that what incarceration does? It hides people away. So it hides all of those social problems, right? And it's like Angela Davis, who, you know, says it, they don't disappear. Social problems, they disappear human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that by putting, and we do that with people with disabilities. We do that with so many different populations. But I think the the most visually compelling example is is incarceration. We literally physically put you in a different space. I, I, I think to, to that point, there's only so much this system can actually do to absolve harm because the system itself is, is harmful. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, harm takes place because of poverty and trauma and patriarchy. So the best thing that we can do is end poverty, mm -hmm. heal trauma, and end patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And that's really not that wild of a notion because prior to the colonization of this place, that's what they did. There was, there's been all kinds of models to deal with harm, and there is less harm taking place. Capitalism sets us up in a position where, where harm becomes inevitable, and then they found some kind of, I wouldn't call it a solution, I would say they found a profitable response to harm, mm. which is the mm. carceral system. But when every, if everybody was housed and had food yep. and water and access to healthcare and mental health care, um, and we had a culture of accountability and, and mutuality instead of patriarchy, we would not have most of the harm that we have. We could abolish true. prisons the same way that most rich people do just by having what they need. <laughs> you know, like when people, when, when we talk about a, a, abolishing prisons and people are like, well, what's going to stop people from harming each other? I always ask them, what's stopping you from harming me right now? Is it because you're afraid that a cop is going to bust in here and arrest you if you shoot me in the face right now? Or is it because you genuinely don't want to because you don't need to? Mm. And when we don't need to or don't feel like we need to or don't feel like we want to, that is 90% of the problem. We'll still have things that happen because humans are humans. Yeah. But at that point, there's so many. We just need to empower communities to deal with those things. I want to thank you, too, for pointing out the because a lot of times people will see it as like this utopian idea and it's so hard to reach for them. But to point out the areas in which we already do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful. Like when you say like you, you often hear people say, well, the safest communities aren't the communities with the most mm -hmm. uh, police or prisons are the communities with the most resources. And that's mm -hmm. true. Right. Like so this idea that we're talking about people, we already do yeah. it. We just choose where we do it and we mm -hmm. choose who gets it. Mm -hmm. And we know that like there's tribes in Africa that. When their community member does something harmful, the way that they deal with that is they put that community member in the middle mm -hmm. of the community, and then everybody talks about the good that they do. Mm -hmm. They talk about the love that they like. They're, they're, they mm -hmm. love on them in that they way. They remind right? them of their nobility and who Boom. they are. Yeah. Yes. Right? We don't do that. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. We do the like, opposite, actually. We demonize. Yeah. And we do, we do it in a way that we hope that will be forever lasting. Right. So it's it, it warms my heart that we can sit here and all have a conversation and, and I feel seen in here. Right. But the truth of the matter is, if we would allow the system to do what it wanted to do, Manny Thomas III would not be sitting here ever. Same. Ever. Yeah. Like they, they sentenced me to 32 years to life. 
I did something horrible. I shot I shot an individual in the leg and he suffered traumatic and I don't you know, I don't know what all how all he was affected after that, right? Because I'm not allowed to. That's another thing we could talk about. Like the system doesn't allow me to 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 even if there was uh on on a mutual basis where he wanted to talk to me, I I couldn't do that because the system says that I can't and I can go Literally, right now, they could send me back to prison with life if I even tried to talk to them. That's really interesting. I'd like to dive into that for a second because, um, I mean, the idea of of repair, right? I think about how I'm raising my two kids. I got a four year, uh, almost four year old, and a six year old right now. Your four year old's about to have a birthday. About to have a birthday. Are they Scorpio? October (laughs) eighteenth. Libra, but still, we stand. Yeah, yeah. Stand? All right. <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell little Maxwell that, that he's good in the eyes of Richie. But um Jesus. <laughs> but but something that is interesting for my wife and I is you watch how they interact. And we've started to use language recently, um, which is harm and repair, right? So if Maxwell does something that harms his sister we find the opportunity for him to repair it. But so much of that repair comes from what is best for Maya, for his sister. So Maya, would you like, how can Maxwell repair right now? Would you like a hug? Do you want a fist bump? Do you want a kiss? And vice versa, yesterday, Maya did something to Maxwell and Maxwell said he wanted a hug. And it was the sweetest moment where she went up and she hugged him and, and, and I just watched my kids and I, it breaks my heart to think about um, incarcerated people not having the opportunity to repair. Um, and I feel like that's a huge missing link. I didn't know that until you just said it, that you'll never be able to apologize, to contact the person, to sit down, have your have a exchange of ideas. What if they, what if they request? Yeah, I'd or come I'm, knocking on your door or something of that nature. They have to go to the district yeah, attorney. Yeah, they still have to go to the district attorney. I, so they I have restrictions not. on them as well. They, I mean, well, they he, probably well, they, wouldn't be incarcerated. Yeah, of course they, they would not. Yeah, 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 of course not. Yeah. I just wonder if that. But was what would happen? But but that person could probably put you at risk at reincarceration. If, right. If if let's say I'm the person that you had the incident with, mm-hmm. and I wanted to come talk to you, and someone heard about it, would that put you at risk? Yes. So, sure. like, for instance, if they didn't go to the district attorney yeah. and we were we were just engaging. You had coffee? And then someone told my parole officer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm going to prison yeah. with life because so, that's so that's So that, and that's the thing. And so I'm just curious, like, Jesus. is that a, is that a missing, is that also a missing element where the people have the, like, that accountability, that reparation, that ability to repair? Is that something that also? Um, I think it's a further example of why we need to get rid of the system. Yeah. yeah I think it's important we don't piecemeal it. Yeah. Um. Because there has been victories on that front, and there are ways now where if the survivor or the victim wants to reach out, they can reach out to the prison system directly or to the district attorney. Um, but again, it's within the context of punishment. So you can't really, like the number one rule of restorative justice is that there can't be any power dynamics at play or it's not truly restorative yeah. for either person. So, for example, if I did something to harm you and now I want to apologize, but you know that I'm in prison and it can somehow make me look good or something, can you really believe me? Mm-hmm. Can you oh, truly get full you're healing? you're just trying to get, yeah, I get it. Yeah, because it just looks like I'm trying to get out. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm curious your take outside of the prison system just on our culture of accountability in general. What um, repair and accountability would look like in in today's world if 
somebody made a mistake, if somebody hurt somebody, if somebody did something wrong, whether at a company, publicly, celebrity, non-celebrity, whatever, what do, what's that work look like to you? I, I think that accountability is very standard, um, but repair is very individual. Mm-hmm. Accountability is simply acknowledging the harm that I've committed. Um, I think that's that's like the baseline of accountability. It's just acknowledging that I chose to do something harmful to someone mm-hmm. else. And then the next level of accountability is I commit to never doing that again. Mm-hmm. And the next level of, com- of accountability is I am so committed to never doing that again. I'm actually committed to help building a world where those types of things don't even happen. Mm. Like engaging systemically to make sure these things are not happening. Talking to other people who might go out and rob people. Um, that I think is, is standard. I, we don't have a culture of that. Again, because we have a punitive culture, it puts us in the position to have to defend ourselves. There's, I would love to actually be accountable for all of the things that I've done, but I would go back to prison for life. So I'm not in position to do that. Um, and that is, outside of just the prison system, we just do that with each other. We seek blame. Like something yeah. bad happens and we say, whose fault is it? And blame is responsibility plus shame. Who is responsible and should be adequately shamed for this? Mm. That is not, that's, it, it's putting the ball in the wrong place. That is not what's helpful. That's not the helpful thing to do after a moment of harm. The helpful thing to do is say, how do we repair this? Which is going to require us to be honest. But if all we're trying to do is assign who's going to get shamed, nobody wants to be honest. Mm-hmm. So most traumas and harms just compile and compile and just get worse and worse and worse over time. And you get the shit show that is America today. <laughs> um, but what what repair looks like once somebody has been accountable is much like it is with your children. It's really up to the person who's been harmed. Yeah. There's, and I think it's really important that we don't look to replace prisons with some other catch-all because the idea that there's the same solution between shooting someone, robbing someone, lying to somebody, and stealing someone's car is it, it, that actually makes no sense. If you steal my car, give me my car back. <laughs> if you lie to me, tell me the truth. Yeah. If you kill my brother, we have to have a very different conversation. But it's not going to be all the same. It's not going to be all the same. But the accountability in, in, on all acts, I think, looks the same. Ad, admit, just state that you chose to harm me and that it was wrong and that you're committed to not doing it and that you're going to try to make sure that it doesn't happen ever again. I may never forgive you. I may not even give a fuck that you even said those things, but you you're, you were still accountable. Mm. Mm. And then also change what you had said earlier about the three reasons why most people are wearing prison to begin with. Yeah. Right. Um, so if someone does kill your brother, there's and people who are in prison serving time for this, first of all, that shouldn't happen. But obviously there were reasons why they got themselves in this situation. And we got to address those things. And that's oftentimes what we decide, oh, it's their problem. It's not my problem. It's their problem until it becomes our problem. We see it as making an excuse for them, that's which right. is not. To, to, to even acknowledge that there is like systemic things happening is seen as like excuse making or justifying mm-hmm. in this hyper individualist culture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to our detriment. Because the fact is poverty exists whether you say it or not. Mm. Trauma exists whether you say it or not, and yep. they yeah. both contribute to harmful behavior yeah. whether we want to admit that or not. Yeah, there's this amazing moment, and this woman, this research I was mentioning, she goes on Bill O'Reilly to talk about this research on sociopaths, and Bill O'Reilly says, you know, but these people are evil, and she says, evil is not a scientific term; it's a religious term. Like, I don't know what evil means. There's wow. no scientific like 
that I don't see it in, in the science. And I thought that was so great because yeah. often this conversation is framed as like lovey-dovey and like hippies and you guys are unrealistic when it's actually like the science doesn't show that people are evil. Well, <laughs> We're being scientific. Because, because it's fear-mongering, right? Mm -hmm. So that is something that you hear people say. Like yeah. when you hear people, the first answer to an abolitionist conversation is, well, what about these people, right? Yeah. Like that's the thing that they do. Separate, and often yeah. they'll bring up a very small percentage of people, like less than 3%. It's mm -hmm. a ridiculously small amount of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and often what I, I try to, I'm like Richie, unfortunately, I think he's had some influence in it. I try to do some reframing yeah. as well. And I ask people this, what if there are no bad people? Mm -hmm. Now that makes other things possible, hmm. right? That weren't possible if I accept that they're just bad people, right? Yeah. Not people who have found themselves in bad situations because of systems, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a difference there. Right. Mm -hmm. There are people who do things, but that doesn't mean that's the core of who they are. Mm -hmm. So if I'm saying that there are no bad people, then it makes us look at look at it a different way. Yeah. And now there are possibilities that are available that aren't available if I'm just seeing people as bad right. people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what happens, right? Yeah. We accept this idea that you know, some people are just bad. Mm -hmm. So if some people are just bad, the systems that we have in play to take away those people, mm -hmm. now we can justify the existence yeah. of it. But that's scary, right? Like if there are no bad people, mm -hmm. then we have to actually acknowledge that it's the system that's bad. <laughs> exactly. Like the, the entire water that we're all in, right? Sure. Is, is, is bad. And I think for a lot of people that's, that's tough. And, you know, so much of this comes back to it. And, and as you're talking, um, I'm, I'm thinking about objectification. And for people who may not mm -hmm. know what that means, it means to turn someone from a subject to an, an, an object, an right? Object, yeah. And in the film, um, there's a, this beautiful quote that, that from a guy who says, I objectified a human being to the point of taking his life. That was Roy. 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 Mm. Who, was, who was now home. Yeah. That's amazing. Just came home like last week. Wow. Or, like, the week wow. before that. Two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. wow. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. That's really amazing. That quote really stuck with me because I think, again, we're used to talking about objectification of women, right? Mm -hmm. And how patriarchy encourages men to objectify women. Mm -hmm. But it also encourages all of us to objectify men. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to that, uh, speak to how limited sort of our understanding is of this uh, term and how it actually applies to everybody under patriarchy. I think patriarchy teaches us to objectify everything. Everybody. Yeah. And and there's, for women, it is sexual objectification or, or servitude, mm. right? But it teaches us, capitalism teaches us everything exists for the purpose of profit. Mm. And patriarchy teaches us that everything exists for the purpose of feeding my ego. Mm. So yeah, Roy said, I objectified another human being to the point of taking his life because it's not like he knew that dude's first and last name right. and was like, I just got to get this person. It was mm -hmm. about what that moment of that murder would do for his ego as a gang member. Right. 88, also in the film, um, said when talking about the, the person who he killed, said in that moment, I didn't see him as a person. I saw him as an object. I saw him as an obstacle is what he said. Like just that, in the way. Yeah. And that is, that's the way that we're, we're taught to see people or, or not see people. And and again, it's by design, right? Because if I can get you to see things as a, see people as an object, it becomes easier for you to do things or mm -hmm. not do things for the person, yeah. right? Because if, if, so for instance, we, and for me, I'm big on language. So I refer to people as brother or sister or community member, right? Because when I'm speaking that language, now I have to care for you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Now, in the culture that I was brought up in, right? And, and when we're talking about gang culture and we say we, we, we see somebody as an enemigo or nigga or whatever, right? It becomes easy for me to harm a nigga. Hmm. That's easy, right? Because I, who is that? It's, any, it, it, it's, it's nobody. It's not, it's not 
oh that's oh that's from Chris from over the way or or that's my boy Jay from over the way or like when I when I don't have those titles to a person and you're just an enemy or or op or all these other things right it becomes easy for me to harm you because I'm not seeing your personhood mm. that becomes much harder to do when you see people as people right and I want to take it out of street culture too I appreciate that and that's and it's 100 percent terrorist true. but no exactly terrorist, they yeah. they teach people in the military to do yeah, that. Yeah, same thing. They program people to not see whoever, quote unquote, the enemy is as a person, person yeah. so that they it is easier you to go and shoot up a <laughs> bunch of people that are not people. Yeah. Or capitalist, consumer. Mm-hmm. It's all language thing, it's, right? And that's, and that's yeah. why we said the inmate thing too, inmate, because yeah. that's, how they, that's how they train yeah. COs to be. They had to call us something else mm. so, that, so that you can justify locking somebody mm. in a cage mm. And just generally treating somebody as less than human every day, like professionally. You can't do that to a person, but you can do it to an inmate. Mm. Or a number. That objectification thing makes me think about, I mean, we we could get into a whole other thing here, but the just rape cultures in general. And I put a study in my book that talked about how they scanned the brains of men who watched porn while they were watching porn. And they showed that when women were on the screen... They were um, the part of the brain that was active is the part of the brain that identifies objects, not people. And it becomes much easier to rape or hurt or objectify or all of the things that we do when we start to view people as less than people. I imagine, um, I imagine there's just a whole lot of unlearning to do. And I can also imagine listening to this conversation and being like, Oh my God, that mountain is so 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 high to climb. Where do we start? Integrity. And, um, and so you know, you for for anybody, integrity. Integrity. So for anybody listening right now, because this is a lot to take in. I mean, sure. we're, we're talking about you know the dismantling of a system um, of multiple systems that lay on top of each other um, can be so intimidating. Um, and uh, and so I'm just I'm just wondering simple advice for people who have maybe never engaged in a conversation like this. Um, where do, where do we start? So for, I would like to say, honestly, I would like to encourage people that you may not recognize it, but it's not a mountain cause you already do it. Richie, Richie alluded to that earlier. So I, I like to kind of pull things out of the cloud. So it's clear. Mm-hmm. So let's use the objectification of women. Right. Yeah. So, in the time when I was, because let's, let's not act like I didn't do it, but in the time when I was, I was also honoring my mother and my sister in a way that women should be honored, right? So it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was I was choosing when I would do it and when I would not. And why? Because there was a sense of ownership there. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So the idea isn't that we can't do it. It's just that we don't do it all the time. So we do this thing that patriarchy calls us to do, which is compartmentalization, where I'm going to be this person over here and mm-hmm. I'm going to be a completely different person. Whether it, And we see it, again, we see it in capitalism too. You can have a man who's a... A, a believer of a religion and treats his family and his wife and everybody good in his community, then he literally goes to work and does things that are that pollute our environment and that mm-hmm. are not good because he's compartmentalizing, right? He's yeah. saying that I'm going to be this person over here. And we're saying the answer to that is integrity, right? The same way in which I'm going to honor my home and I'm going to honor my wife and honor my children and honor my community, I'm then going to honor the people who are affected by the things I do at work. So the same way that I hold respect for my sister or a woman I may know at work or my mom or whatever, the same way, the same respect that they're entitled to, the same way I which I wanted them to be treated is the same way that I should want all women to be treated, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how we walk in integrity, saying I'm going to be the same, that same individual in all aspects of my life Mm -hmm. and then i think that it would be helpful that you find some people that are loving to hold you accountable 
right? Because yes. it's not something that like you just do all of a sudden and then you're healed and you're going to do it all the time. We still, years mm -hmm. later, have accountability conversations. Um, I still, there's friends that are quick on my call list to where they know that they need to hold me accountable. It's happened during another podcast that I did. I used terminology that was oppressive to a certain population of people, but I did it, it was out of habit, right? I didn't even realize it, but mm. thankfully, the, the person that I was talking to had been in the work for a long time too and called me on it in the moment, right? And I think that those are the type of things that as we start to have these conversations more, as people are learning and investigating and willing to embrace a new way of thinking and a paradigm shift, that that will happen more often. So it's not this idea of perfection. It's this idea of practice and something that's more uh, practice, e yeah. equitable and, and inclusive of, of everyone. Mm. I, I also think what's helpful to me is like abolitionists, we're not really building anything new. Um, everything we're really doing is just trying to get the world back to what it was like for the first 10,000 years of human history. <laughs> I mean, like prior to colonization, the idea that not responding to harm by trying to destroy someone's life, that would not be a radical idea. These are not radical ideas. People Even capitalism is Yeah. You know, it's new. It's brand capitalism new. is really new. The police have are, are a very new system. Prisons are a very new system. Prior to, to colonization, people were responding to harm in all kinds of ways. And all we're really doing is trying to get back to what our indigenous ancestors were doing and in on this land and and the, on the continent of Africa and all over. There's so much to learn from what people were already doing. The practice mm. Ubuntu that he was talking about earlier is a practice that's existed for thousands of years. Like it's yeah. not new. Um, and I, I just encourage folks who maybe it seems like a lot to just look up indigenous responses to harm and just like, mm. just learn about it and see that there's thousands of ways that human beings have responded to harm. And this thing with prisons and cops and all that is actually very, very new. Mm -hmm. I, what I appreciate what we're doing now is modeling for a lot of men in the world. Um, we're, we're spending a lot of time obviously talking about incarceration and things of that nature and systematic racism and abuse towards many. But there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are struggling with different things, right? Mm -hmm. um, that nothing to do with crime, but just how they treat their children, how they treat women, how they pay people, how, all these things. Um, and we know it starts with accountability, acknowledgement. Yeah. And what I've heard you guys do the whole time while talking about a system is never forgetting to own your part in it. You haven't one time excused behavior. You haven't said, well, I did this because this patriarchy made me do it. You've helped explain it, but you haven't excused your own behavior. And so you get to model for other people who are listening to us. Like, it's not a, it's, it's actually not a weak thing to do mm. to like own, like, man, I fucked up. You know, I, I, this is what I had to work with, but I own that so that I can recognize, reflect, and then be better. And then teach my children to be better, which you got a baby coming, right? So, or, or you got a baby, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, it gives us an opportunity to be better. And I appreciate that about you because uh, this is what we need to do. Men, mm -hmm. one of my my conundrums with men. Can I actually say that word conundrum? Um, like can't like can? Are you asking me or are you, are no, you no, actually no, saying, saying can you? No, no. <laughs> is is the idea of our egos oftentimes so often get in our way of just acknowledging that we've screwed up a little bit, that we can be better, because it, for some reason it makes us think that we're weak. 
Sure. So, um, and you're not. So I think you guys show a lot of strength in, in being here and sharing what you're doing in the way you do it. And, you know, thank you. Uh, thank you. Indeed. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, the stakes are high within in patriarchy to admit when we're wrong because there's so much shame. But the we don't have to validate that. Actually, a way that makes it easier for me is to just ex- expect that I'm going to fuck up. Like the clock is always starting again of when the next time someone's going to be like, you did this thing that hurt my feelings. You did this thing that was patriarchal mm-hmm. and just expect it. That moment is coming again. It's probably coming again today. And then when it comes, it doesn't feel like the the world is shattering. Literally, these people came from Europe, stole people from Africa, came here, took over the whole continent, killed and raped millions of people, and then set up the culture for all of us to follow. In what universe are we going to be good people? Why would I be surprised? That is the, that is that was the that was the prefix to this. Our culture is brought to you by the executive producers of slavery. It's not going to be good for any of us. We're all going to act like that. You know what I'm saying? So when it happens, it's easier to just be like, "Cool. Thank you for telling me that." And it might sting in the moment because of that human part of us that expects us to be perfect, mm-hmm. but you just get the practice of like, "I'm not going to be perfect." I was talking to Manny yesterday and he was like telling me like we were supposed to have like a conversation. He was like, I don't feel emotionally safe having that conversation with you, with me. And I was like, okay. Um, that is interesting because this is, I mean, y'all get to see woke Manny, bro. I've seen a whole different Manny. So for Manny to tell me that he didn't feel emotionally safe having conversation with me, it was like, mm-hmm. but then I was like, of course, because I show up in these ways too, you know? And I can be like, um, like, uh, like intellectually domineering and like ch- like show up in ways that can make people feel like I don't take their feelings seriously and show up in ways where I don't take people's feelings seriously. And I've, I've treated him like that. So I understand why he would say that. And I had to just like hold it, take like the initial shock of him saying that and then like deep breath and be like, okay, like we're going to talk about that. This is, my, this is my brother. I love him. We're going to get to the other side of this. The world didn't end. It's going to be okay. Um, but it's helpful for me to expect those things. Like they're coming. Mm. And and it's, it's like he was saying earlier, it's not that I missed the mark. It's that the mark missed. The mark that I was given as a child to aim for was a fucked up mark. So I'm trying to pull away from it, but I'm not always going to because it's just how we were socialized to be. So every, I'm going to show up in certain ways and I just need to expect that and just be cool with it. And the, the, the goal is to get to accountability as quickly as possible. And shame is only in the way. So... Just building the practice of not wallowing in shame and not mm. getting in that tornado of like, mm. I'm a bad person. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Da, 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 da. What does this mean about me? What does this mean mm. about my forefathers before me? Like, it doesn't mean anything. It just means I'm a human being. I have the potential to harm people. And let's get to the accountable part. Mm. I think wow. a, a mm. wonderful example of the very private moment he just shared um, <laughs> is I ne- we never would have got there if I was embracing patriarchy. No, I, well, that's what I was thinking when he said that. I first thought, "Damn, that was brave of you, Manny." It, it, and that's so only happening emotionally safe. Yeah, I, well, I said yes. I said safe, but um, <laughs> yeah. So that doesn't happen though. And if 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 we if I'm not consistently in the work, right? Yeah, um, that doesn't happen. And so then the question becomes, what happens if I don't have the strength to do that? A whole bunch of other stuff that's maladaptive, right? Mm-hmm. And and the sky is the limit, really. Do do I start to drink my problems away, right? Uh, to be quite frank, what was happening and why I had to do the work to get to that point to say that to him is I, I realized I was becoming irritable in my personal life, 
Mm-hmm. Like I was bringing things from other areas to other areas and I'm going, whoa, we don't do this. Like this isn't how we operate. So I need to take this moment and have a conversation with someone that I love and care about um, and worry about the rest of it later. But I just need to be truthful and honest about where I'm at. Right. Um, and I, th- I think that another another thing what you're talking about, it goes back to like what Richie was saying about this idea of fault. So when you remove fault and you're willing to say, OK, I'm not going to be even worried about whose fault it is, but I'm going to look at what my contribution to an outcome was that for some, it like it relieves some of it. It's like, OK, we're not worried about who's at fault. But what was my contribution? Because that does a whole lot of stuff, too. Now, now it makes me powerful in a way because I have the power to change a situation. Right. Yeah. We're aware of the system is foul. But we're also aware of that we did things to put us in the system's hands. And the system is us. Mm. True. So we can change it. I could have sat in prison and not been completely forthcoming about, like, I could have blamed the system. I was a black man and I was in a rich white city and they wouldn't have done this to my white counterparts and they wouldn't have got this time and all this. So what would then have happened, right? I don't do the work. That's right. Right? I don't do the work. Right, I don't. I don't add, I'm not worried about accountability. I don't heal in any type You're of way. Angry. I'm angry. Central. I'm bitter. So then, what becomes now? The chances are that I just would have been caught up in the cycle of violence. Probably would have gotten in trouble some more. Maybe went to the hole. It wasn't about what was that fault. It's like, what's your contribution? What are you going to do about it? And that doesn't mean that Orange County isn't racist. No, it's it doesn't mean that. Not the whole story. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's not the whole story. I love that though. If, if only all of us were raised in a system that encouraged us to raise our hand and say, I was a part of it, what was my contribution? Because when you said that, I just went back to being a child and it was all us did this Mm -hmm. because it's punitive. And the Baha'i faith, Jamie and I are both Baha'is, Abdul Baha says, love never dwelleth in a heart possessed by fear. And just that idea of like, we're afraid. So we don't say anything, we don't speak up. But if all of us spoke up, if all of us said, no, I was a part of it. That happened to him, but I, I was a part of it. We'd have so much less fear and we could come from this place of love. And it reminds me of another quote from our, from the Baha'i faith, Abdu'l-Baha says, uh, in, in the future, thinking of a future where there is unity and where that we're living with love, when the future, the crime itself will be the punishment. And I went back to that like village in Africa, that tribe that put that brother in the center and told him all the good things. Mm Mm-hmm. And that alone is enough. Absolutely. I think uh, one thing, I don't know why it's on my heart to say right now, but even when we're talking about like success stories and we're talking about basically creating these spaces where men can be more vulnerable, um, I noticed that a lot of individuals get caught up in certain cycles with fear and this idea of their being alone. And what I think what's powerful about like why podcasts are important, why conversation is important, why creating these spaces are important is because the more that we share our stories, the less people feel alone because they start to see and hear themselves yes. in somebody else. Mm. Like, oh, it's, it's not just me. And that's when we talk about patriarchy and the conversations that we're having in success stories, that's where a lot of the light bulbs go off. When men are sharing their stories and a whole bunch of other people are going, oh, it's not just me. Yeah. Like, I thought I was the only one with that fear, or I thought I was the only one with that feeling, or I thought I was the only one that was taught that. Because you start to see men who don't share a socioeconomic background, who don't share ge- ge- geography, like they don't share 
a generation in ages. Like they don't share any of these things, but they share all these templates. They share these experiences because the template in which we were given about this rigid idea of masculinity has put us in a position to experience our existence in the same way. The greatest myth of masculinity is that we have to do it alone. Hmm. And, uh, oof. And that is a prison in itself. Uh, there's so much. I just want to keep going. I just wish there was a part two and a part three. Um, and maybe, maybe you guys will come back. I'd love to come back. Uh, uh, maybe you guys I've will come back. I've already said that we will both have each other's number when this is over. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, that's yes. happening. I mean, you're going to come stay in the tiny house. Listen. You're coming out. You're going to hang out. You can't get rid of me now. I'm not coming. There ain't no plan doing it. <laughs> Although you have to ask Jamie because he's that he's named the tiny house his. We have it, a little, is, it is mine. We have a we have one of those little we, tiny we, like we literally two hundred square feet tiny houses we what? for our friends. We literally just had a two hour, two hour conversation about community. So <laughs> yeah, but, no, no, <laughs> what's yours is mine. <laughs> except for except for the tiny house. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's where it ends. Um, all right. Um, so let's do rapid fire questions. Welcome to this week's Man Enough podcast rapid fire questions. When is the last time that you cried? Last week. Oddly enough, yeah, last week. Why? I was praying. I was. Mm. I want our friend to come home. Mm. I was feeling unseen by the people who matter most to me. Mm. Tell me one thing in your life you regret. Um, one time I told a dude on Craigslist to come buy a car and I, I had no money. I spent all my money on the car and he had no phone and he was like, all right, I'm going to take the, he was two hours away. He's like, I'm about to take the bus for two hours. And then somebody called me and offered me more money for the car. I was 18 years old and I went and I took it to that other person. And that dude just, uh, he had no car, no phone. He was calling me from all these random phones, pay phones. Like he was just like, bro, I'm here. Where are you at? And I was just like. Ignoring his calls, and there's just. I'm so glad we talked about not blaming because I would call you a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, regret. I have an interesting relationship with regret, um, but we that you would do differently. Uh, I. Ooh. I think what I always come back to is I think I had a lot of people in my life that would have been willing to help me if I would have asked for help, and I just never did. Mm. So I regret like not trusting them enough to really just ask for what I needed. Because uh, I, I look back and a lot of those same people are in my life right now. And I know that they would have given the world hmm. to help me not be in the place that I was at inside myself. But they had no way of knowing because I put up that wall that says I'm good. Yeah. Armor. Uh, what are you afraid of? That I'm not as dope as people that I think I am. That no, that's scary. Like so, for instance, like this, um, I, people have told me, "You need to do this. You need to have a podcast. You need to do that. You need to do this." And the only reason I haven't done it is in my mind, th there's this thing that says, "What well, you're not as dope as you think you are." That sh I'm, f that scares me. One of your that's your that's one of your greatest fears. Yeah, yeah, because right. what it's it's not allowing. It's one of the things that's not allowing me to be me. Mm. Because I'm telling myself in my own head, bro, you're not that dope. Yeah, you're not enough. Yeah, you're not that dope, bro. And and that I'm like I'm 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 literally I literally maybe keeping myself from fulfilling mm -hmm. one of the biggest dreams that I have left. It's the fear of success. You know what I mean? I got yeah. out of prison, got married. Well, I got married, then got out of prison. 
I have a daughter, like all those other big things that were on my top five, like I did it. And mm. then I got to freedom and it's just like, yeah, bro. What if you're not as dope as you think you are? Wow. Yeah, and that, that comes up for me a lot. What are you doing to, to change that? I tell people and hopefully that, the more, <laughs> that yeah. voicing it will uh, not allow me to like have it be this thing that's in the dark that I only know about. Uh, because what happens is like yesterday, I went, was it yesterday? Yesterday, the day before yesterday, I had to go help a friend move. And before he even said hello, he said, bro, what's up with your podcast? And I was like, oh. Mm. And I just, I simply asked him, like, not now. Can, can we just move? And he was like, it'll come back. So I, well, I let me tell you right now, as somebody who is in a position that hires people, that you're as dope as you think you are. That's for damn sure. Podcast guy. Yeah, I mean, it means a lot. It feels good. <laughs> what about you, Richie? Um, getting reincarcerated. I think about that probably every day. Mm. Wow. For no other reason besides like trauma, it's not like I'm doing anything illegal, but that's not a requirement for getting incarcerated. So, <laughs> do I have any movie buffs in here? You know the town. Yes, Anybody sir. The town when he's like, man, if I get caught, I'm holding courts in the street. Now I'm not advocating violence, and I'm not holding courts in the street. But I felt what he was saying. Absolutely. Like the idea of going back to prison, I'd rather not exist. Yeah, mm. not an option. That, that that but that speaks the only reason I say that is because that speaks to the trauma of prison. And you and you're probably talking to two people that, if I'm being honest, I'll talk for myself, to where it wasn't like like I was never sexually abused in prison or anything like that. People have much worse horror stories than I do about prison, and it's still that severe. Yeah. Like the 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 constant reinforcement of you being nothing. Yeah. Is enough for me to be like, I I'll never go back to that place. Yeah, that's the worst part, for sure. I was sexually assaulted in prison, and that was still the worst part. Just the daily, small, like, you are not a person shit is by far the worst. It's not the, like, horror stories, sleeping on the floor with, like, throw-up sheets. It's, like, the moments of, like, knocking on a door and a cop just looking at you and just not answering it. Like you don't like, exist. Yeah. <sighs> Hmm. Uh, when is the last time that you apologized? Today. <laughs> no joke, today. I'm also married, so I don't know if we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today. Um, yesterday. I, yeah, yesterday, I, on Sundays, I tried really hard not to work. And my brother hit me up and was asking me to work. And at first I was like being very helpful with things. And then he asked me for another thing. And I was like, bro, I'm about to block you. And he was like, you were being helpful a second ago. Like, I don't know. And then I was like, I, I just had to apologize for setting unrealistic expectations and not being clear. Oh. Uh, you have a time machine. And you get to go back and you get to talk or whisper in the ear of three-year-old you who just got hit in the face by his cousin. What do you say? You're enough. Hmm. Straight up. I think if I would have realized that I was enough the way I, I you stop pretending at that point, right? I really, if yeah. I'm enough, I don't got to play the part no more. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what's happening. You put on this character, and unfortunately for most of us, we put on the character for so long that we forget we're not the person we're playing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's that was my addition. Mm -hmm. Showed up that day, three years old, my cousin hit me, I go in the house, my dad says, you're not that person, I start acting. Richie, 10-year-old you. Same. Lizard. Yeah, same. It was literally, before you even finished the question, that you are enough. It's just the most um, important thing that I feel like we can mm -hmm. tell anybody, especially children. I have a five-year-old nephew who 
I can just tell that he knows he's enough and just how he moves through the world. It's like seeing a person move through the world who's never been traumatized and mm -hmm. like a little boy who's never been soul murdered. Yeah. And, and he's just like the most amazing being I've ever experienced. That's how I feel about my son. I'm trying to prevent the soul murder from happening. That's why the book's called Man Enough. <laughs> and now you got a time machine. You're going to 70, 80 years in the future. You're a ghost at your own funeral. You're watching what people are saying about you, what your children are saying about you. What do you hope they say about the way you move through the world? You always divert to me first. I just, uh, you talk a lot. So I it do. gives me time to like think about it. Uh, he's not I, listening to you while you're talking. He's thinking about his answer. I know, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. And you've seen I got caught in HD earlier. Um, I would hope that people would just say that, that Richie put on for his community. Uh, I hope that I was like, I want to say helpful, but not that. What, I like the idea, the times in my life that I feel like I am the most me is when somebody calls me in their time of need and I'm like, and I'm there for them in that way. And I'm hoping that people around me feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, it's such an honorable position to be in when people feel, when you know that somebody's calling you in that moment, mm -hmm. like... That says a lot about who I am as an individual. It means you're a safe place. And that's huge for somebody who who walked through their life, a majority of it, feeling misunderstood or like nobody cared. And I know it had to do with my paradigm because I was telling myself nobody cared. Um, but yeah, for somebody who walked the majority of their life thinking that and for people to call you when they need you, like when they're going through something that has nothing to do with you and they call you like... That for me. So I'm hoping that, you know, when my time is through with this experience, um, the people that remain feel like, yeah, he, he helped me. Mm. Jamie's that brother for me. And he's that for a lot of people. You want to ask the final question? I do. And I'm, a, and, and I just want to say something or ask something or acknowledge something. I'm noticing, like in this conversation, normally I'm, I talk a lot. You know, I got a lot to say. A lot of times and I'm noticing like why aren't you saying much and one of the reasons is there's four men here and of course I want to be mindful of making space for Liz as well because you know oftentimes but you know the real reason is because there's three black people over here and I and I'm feeling I don't want us to bombard a conversation we're too much hmm. Hmm. there's a bunch of white people in the room maybe more white people listen than not. And I'm like, all right, just make sure there's space. Make sure we don't come on too strong or too scary or too something, too many voices. I'm finding that's why I'm quiet. Mm -hmm. Not because y'all did anything. And I just recognize that in this moment. So um, I'm going to say to myself, I'm enough and I don't have to worry about that, right? I'm going to just start with that. And like, I, I don't need to be thinking about that. Um, what does it mean to y'all to be mad enough? I'm not interested in being man enough. Personally, I'm mm -hmm. I'm not interested in in gender being attached to my value in any way. I'm just trying to be me enough. <laughs> I love that answer so much. Should have went first. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I mean that's it, right? Like at the end of the day, it's just like 
I just want to be a person of value. Like, I don't want to squander the idea that there is just, I, it's only me. There's only one Manny Thomas the third. That's it. Uh, and I feel like if I don't, if I don't acknowledge that there's only one me, like, am I, I'm doing life a disservice. Like, this is some magical shit we got going on here. Like, life is some magical shit. Hmm. Uh, and if we can't embrace who we are, like, we not really living. So this magical shit just becomes a waste. Uh, and I'm not interested in wasting that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the man enough, like, like Richie said, I'm just trying to be enough. And I'm trying to do it in a way to where people can see themselves in me and I can see myself in others. Because mm. uh, I believe it's that level of connection that will allow me to get the greatest experience out of, of, of this thing that we're doing, right? Mm. Out of this beautiful blessing that we have. So I just want to be. But I fuck with the brand though. Like man <laughs> enough as a thing, like I get it. Like oh, I, no, I think it's a good hook. No, 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 no. The question is not designed for you to answer in any other yeah. way than how you answered. Hey, I and, appreciate and, it. And just so you know something, the the thesis of the book is what you just said. No, exactly. That's and right. that's what I'm saying. I love it as like the name of the thing because I know the point is like the other thing. And and that's all that matters. Is that's why your answer, both of your answers are some of my favorite. Mm -hmm. because it's 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 existing as Rumi says beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing right we are just enough as we are so with that both of you Manny Thomas the third Richie Brasita you are enough and thank you for coming on the show and for being with us today thank you thank you for really having appreciate us it. Real, thank you for having for real. us you almost gave me a complex <laughs> oh I'm giving you my spot we will be right back you hear how we finished that <laughs> what Something about the tiny house. Like, you know, that's he thinks because we all cool. He's, <laughs> that's what you was getting to. I'll let you guys work out. Uh, we will be right back. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to Man Enough. Damn. That was great. Jamie, you just told me when you sat down that you're feeling all, all kinds of things, all sorts of ways. What are you feeling? Oh, I didn't expect you to ask me that. What? Because, uh... Because I feel... Jesus, man. These two brothers here... Everybody, most everybody that's behind bars are them. Mm. Mm. These amazing, wonderful humans. Um... And the idea that we fear them. And so while I was watching, while we were talking, I was feeling that, mm. that we're championing them, of course, and they deserve to be championed. And then I also hate the fact that it requires them to be this brilliant for us to care. Kind of like what Alok said, you know? Yeah. That, um, Anyway, so I'm feeling that I'm trying to just sort through my feelings because they're me, you know, growing up, just thinking about how I experienced life and being a wanting to be seen and valued and loved and always realizing I have to be on and better and get people to like me. I still carry that. You know, I walk mm -hmm. into rooms and with people and, and I want people to like me. So I, I, I perform. I try to be authentic with it. Mm -hmm. 
And while they're being authentic, they're also forced to perform so that they can be accepted. Um, so you can afford to not be fully accountable and you're still good. But if they don't, they go back to a place that robs them of their humanity. Mm. Um, anyways, I'm really proud of them and love them. And I'm also feeling a funny way mm. because, it, uh, and I also don't want people to watch them and only have it be perpetuated that black boys, black men are always in trouble, you know, that we're always need to be redeemed and um, be held accountable mm. um, because that's oftentimes a narrative. So that's what I'm feeling. I, I'm still sorting through what I'm feeling mm. totally. But um, anyway, they are powerful. And so I'm so thrilled we had them on here. Yeah. Um, and Justin, you said to them on camera, um, I think it was that we need to do something with them. So I'm going to hold us to that in some way. We need to figure out a way to do something for them to do something because what we care about as a company is changing humanity and changing the world. And these men right here are doing it now. Well, I don't um, even think it needs, to, I'm looking at it as they're doing it anyways. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of time before somebody else spots their brilliance. Mm -hmm. Um, Liz. Yeah. I mean, I, I still am processing how unusual it is to have men <laughs> talking about <laughs> radical, like being more radical, <laughs> um, than, than even I think where my mind allows myself to go truly Yeah, and be so honest and so funny and real and I don't know, even the way that they answered questions, I thought was really illustrative of, of their perspective and how they're approaching all of these issues, which is reframing mm -hmm. and not answering the question in the way that we're expecting them to do it or society's expecting them to do it or even the way that, you know, yeah. to make you feel good. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there was so much truth. That's what it was. Yeah. Like that is, these guys are who they are. Yeah. And... Before we were rolling, that was who they were. Yeah, which is why we knew we were in for a treat. <laughs> and um, and I just I don't know. Maybe being through everything they've gone through, they just they've shed all of those things, and they are just showing up in the world as who they are. And I don't know. That's how you change the world. That's how you change change hearts. So um, and you, you know what, too, Liz. By the way, what you have, you've always been wonderful and brilliant. And if I may also just demonstrate some growth that I have seen in you since we've done this. I've grown a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you so often, because most of the time we have men that we're talking about masculinity with, because we're the ones with the problem, not so much women, but of course we do have women on the, on the podcast, but mainly men. And you have navigated this so amazingly where you, you give space. Like you, it's like you've recognized all right, these men have to work something out. They're talking. And then you you don't take offense to it. You don't you don't make me ever feel like um you're not yeah. honoring me. You're not making space. It's like you 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 really really and I don't want to say grown as if like you yeah, weren't yeah. there before, but 
I appreciate how you do that, how you navigate this walk, where you allow us to process and then hold us accountable also and then ask questions that we mm. need to answer we may forget to bring up. Um, and then also allow that to happen, and you do that really well. And yeah. I'm sorry you're in that position to have to do that, but also thank you. Mm, thank you. And we're all, yeah, finding a flow. I feel like, again, we don't have to talk anymore. <laughs> we like... <laughs> I'll say this. Have I told you lately that I love you? Oh, That's what I say to my kids. I, I love, love Liz you. Plank. Sing that. What are you trying to get me to sing something? Uh, <laughs> if you like the love fest and the truth fest and everything we get into on this show, please like and subscribe us. And subscribe, subscribe us? If you like... What are you laughing at? Because you said subscribe us and you think we're going to cut that out. <laughs> I'm cutting not. that out. No, we're not. We're keeping we are. that in. No, 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 no. Oh, He's the president it. now. He gets... <laughs> People have tuned out by this point. Yeah, it's okay. uh, Thank you so much for listening to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. And I'm Jamie Heath. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra-Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Carrie Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.